You guys can have a seat. Welcome to Providence Church. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I didn't ever read that story in the children's picture Bible growing up. Did any of you? Yeah, stuff gets pretty bad in there. We've got quite an interesting text for this morning um, that we're going to be diving into. But I figured since uh, a lot of you came last week and you heard a whole sermon about locusts and locusts eating everything and devouring everything and you came back this week, then you could probably handle this as well. And so uh, I'm excited for this morning, albeit uh, kind of a an interesting bleakness to our passage. So I want to give you a little preview before we dive in, a little overview of this. So um, the other day, I was, uh, I met or I ran into a friend of mine as I was here in Midtown Omaha and quickly upon talking to him, I realized uh, that he had the remnants of his lunch left on his face. And as I looked at him, I'm like, oh, inside my head, I'm thinking I've got a couple different options. Like I thought, man, how awkward is it going to be if I tell him that he's got his lunch on his face? Should I do it or should I just leave it? Well, I also knew that he was about ready to walk into a meeting with a bunch of people. So he was about ready to see a bunch of people. I thought, man, if I don't tell him, though, he's going to go in and he's going to walk into this meeting and and they're all going to see him and then somebody in front of everyone is going to have to tell him. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. Or maybe even worse than that, no one tells him. He goes home four hours from now and he looks in the mirror and looks at his face. He's like, what? I've had my lunch on my face the whole time and no one told me. So I had this internal struggle. Some of you uh, who are conflict avoiders are like slouching in your chairs like, oh, just don't put me in that situation. I don't want to have to make a decision on that. Others of you are like, dude, you just got to help a brother out and just tell the guy and get it over with, right? Well, in my um, relative and moderate maturity that I've grown into out of being a conflict avoider, I am the kind of person now who will just go ahead and say, hey man, you got, you got something right here you need to take care of. But in this specific case, I had another friend who came up and started talking to me and I got distracted and I forgot. And so we walked into the meeting and I don't know what happened, but I'm sure, I'm sure it was fine. <clears throat> now this passage today to uh, maybe more serious degree is kind of a version of this dilemma that there's something wrong. There's a problem that's coming our way. And in this particular passage, in essence, it's an opportunity for us to be pulled aside and to be told or warned about something that's wrong. There's something coming to us if we don't fix it now. So the question that we're going to have to really wrestle with in our own hearts this morning is, will we actually listen to the warning that's coming to us or not? Will we listen to the, the, the warning about something wrong? Will we heed this or will we just kind of shrug it off and keep going? Now, I, I don't know about you, but I think most all of us, if we had a friend come up to us and say, hey man, you got lettuce in your teeth, we wouldn't just shrug it off and keep going. We'd listen and respond to that, right? And so the question is, is will we respond to this today? Now, even though this text is written uh, two, maybe even closer to 3,000 years ago, uh, and it's written to the ancient nation of Israel, it actually has real meaning for us today, and eternity does actually hang in the balance. 
God is trying to speak loud and clear to us today with this timeless message, and he's going to do it uh, by showing us who he is in this process. And so we see three ways that God reveals himself. First, he's going to reveal himself in our text as a watchman. So God is our watchman. Then he's going to reveal himself as judge. And then thirdly, he's going to reveal himself as our substitute. So we're going to see him as watchman, judge, and substitute. And we're going to go through this. And honestly, uh, I've been praying a lot this week because this text is a little bit overwhelming to me. And I've had the staff praying with me. And we've been praying for, for all of us, for you guys, as we've come into this place this morning, that God would give you the faith, the obedience to listen and respond to what he's trying to say. There's a real message in here. So would you hear this? So we're going to start in Joel chapter 2, right in verse 1. We're going to read the first couple of verses, and we're going to see God as watchman. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got your Bible on your phone, feel free to turn to verse 1, Joel 2, and we're going to read this. I'll reread the first couple of verses. It says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain, like all the inhabitants of the land, or let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The, the, the first point we're going to hit today is that God is our watchman. So what does this mean? Well, first let me give you uh, some background. Many of you, if you were here last week, you, you learned a little bit of the context of Joel, but if you weren't here, let me catch you up. So um, there's not much outside information. Scholars don't really know the larger context this, that this falls in. So we really have to look inside the book of Joel to find out what it's about. And so there's only a few things that we really come up with. And the first one is very clear that the Israelites are in a very, very bad place in this text. Because there is this massive locust invasion that is coming into their country. And God is telling, this is the context of Joel, God is telling the prophet Joel to communicate that these locusts are coming and destruction is coming. And this is a punishment. And that they're supposed to turn back to God. That's what's happening in the book of Joel that we heard in verse 1. Now, Andrew, last week, disgustingly described what locusts are like, which is why we have locusts on the screen. I mean, we're weird, but we're not usually that weird. But we have locusts on the screen because that's the context of the book of Joel here. And so what happens is uh, when locusts come in, they can come in swarms up to millions. And they can cover, they can be so thick, and they can cover dozens and dozens of square miles, that they actually cover the light of sun. They create this darkness over the land. But not only that, but they devour everything in their path. They come, they destroy the crops. They come and destroy plants. They'll destroy trees. They'll come in and kill the livestock and all the animals around. And so essentially what it does is it ensures that a famine is going to happen. Which, interestingly, like Andrew pointed out last week, Israel is an agricultural society. So everything they do, everything they have is dependent on their crops and their livestock. And these locusts are about to take them out, which means that they could completely be annihilated. That everyone could literally die from this. Now, back to our question. How is God a watchman? So in this time... um, in the ancient Near East, uh, there would be a watchman that would sit or stand on the city walls 
of a city that would, these walls would surround a city. And this watchman's job was to care for the people, to love the people, to warn the people by looking out for any oncoming army or oncoming threat that might be coming. And the watchman would look out and if there was someone coming for the good of the people, he would tell someone who would blow a trumpet or a horn. And he would say, hey, there's someone coming. And this, this horn that would blow would sound people, hey, there's something bad coming our way. And this is essentially what is happening in this text so they could be prepared for this oncoming attack. Now, the interesting thing about the first few verses is that in verse 1, at least the first couple lines, God is doing the talking in this. Like in the book of Joel, it's usually Joel that's actually being the one who's giving the warning. But in this, God is talking. It says right at the beginning, it says, blow a trumpet in Zion. He's warning of the oncoming locust attackers. And it says, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Well, Joel doesn't have a holy mountain. God is the one with the holy mountain. So God is the one who's giving the warning here. This section starts, this chapter starts with God as the watchman perched on the wall looking for threats, looking for disaster, for oncoming attackers. And in this text, he is urgently and compassionately trying to warn these people. He's trying to get the attention of Israel so they can know what's coming to them. And he's actually, in a broader way, trying to warn us in this room of what is coming our way. This destruction of locusts is coming their way, and it's the people's fault. These people, these Israelites, had incurred judgment on them, but... If you think about us in here, what is, what is it exactly that's coming our way? Like, how could this possibly apply to us? I don't think there's any locusts on the horizon coming, although no, none of us expected snow in mid-April either. So who knows what might be coming tomorrow? But how does this apply in a broader way? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, many times prophecies and warnings uh, were given for a specific time and a specific people like this, about the locusts. But... In a, in, a, in a grander way, these immediate prophecies were a forerunner of another version, of a larger scale version of this warning or prophecy that was coming. And that's exactly what's happening here. So this term, day of the Lord, that's used here, it's used throughout other places in the Old Testament, it's used in the New Testament as well. This day of the Lord is a future day when God will come and he will judge and he will bring judgment upon this world for sin. And so essentially this warning of God being watchman has a double meaning for the locusts that are right there for the Israelites and for the ultimate destruction of the day of the Lord that's coming for all people. Scholars would agree that that this has a double meaning. They would say, yes, there's something going on very specific here, but there's actually something much worse that's coming for the sins that we've committed against God by being obedient. And God, the watchman, is trying to warn people here, and he's trying to warn us today that this is a real day, and it's actually coming for all people. And honestly, we don't, we don't really think about this. You know, I, I talk to somebody in between services after the 9 a.m., and they're like, man, we really like to talk about God's love, but we don't really like to talk about 
the day of the Lord and judgment coming. We'd rather think about who's going to be the Nebraska quarterback next week or next year. Or we'd rather think about uh, the weather or talk about the weather. We'd rather think about what we're going to have for lunch or maybe how we're going to start making more money in the future or, or maybe the relationship that's coming our direction. We let these things occupy our mind. I know in my head, I operate in this little kingdom of Jared and trying to figure out what's next for me and what's good and what's bad for me in this small little world. But God is trying to communicate something else. God as the watchman is saying, hey, send off a trumpet blast. Send off a siren. There's something coming. Each and every one of us is is headed toward this day. The day of the Lord where we will stand before God. And God is graciously warning us now that this is coming. And it could be soon. I, uh, I liken this warning to a, uh, a siren at a fire station. So me and my family, we live a couple blocks away that direction in Morton Meadows. And we actually have a fire station in Morton Meadows. And so when the fire, uh, alarm, or the fire alarm goes off or the fire station, whatever, the siren goes off, it's actually pretty loud. And we first moved in, it maybe was a little bit alarming. And you know what that means when the fire, when the, when the fire siren goes off, you know that there's some people that are going out to try to help someone because there's something bad that's happened. Somebody's uh, house is burning or someone's sick or someone's in need of help. And so you know that, but inevitably, as we've lived there for now almost four years, what happens is that siren goes off. It's still as loud, but you kind of shrug it off. Like more often than not, when that siren goes off in my neighborhood, I don't even, I don't even hear it. Like it just happens and I just go on with my day and do whatever I can, whether I'm inside or outside. However, in the summertime, say you're outside in the summertime and you're kind of looking around and the wind starts to pick up and the clouds start to look a little bit ominous and the sky is getting darker and the darkness is coming toward you. And then when that same siren goes off and it starts to escalate and it keeps that constant tone, you know what that means right away, and it catches your attention. You know that, that they're warning you of, of destruction, of a tornado that's in the area. And so what do you do? You may stay outside if you're crazy and look for a couple seconds, but you immediately, you dart inside, you turn on the news to try to figure out what's going on, right? And as soon as you find out how, in how immediate danger you are, then you dart to the basement and you get to a safe place. This is the same source of the siren, but these two sirens elicit completely different meanings. And God in this text is sounding off the second siren. He's trying to keep us from thinking that this is just another fire drill. This is real. It's coming and it's serious. So what's our response to this? Our response is to listen to him. To heed this warning, to understand the, the, the reality of the true coming judgment that's going to be described as we go on in Joel 2. And let me say this, man, God being a watchman is actually incredible news for us. God wouldn't have to do this, but his judgment is coming and he's warning us beforehand This is a gracious and loving act to us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to sound a very loud and clear warning, even as we're here this morning. 
today giving us an opportunity to turn back to him. And so this morning, we should be praising God that he is a watchman. That's good news for us. So what exactly is God warning us of in this? Let's look at the next few verses and what I'm describing or what I'm labeling God as judge. So we saw uh, the destruction or the potential destruction in the future in those first few verses, like off in the distance. And now we're going to see it up close. We're going to see what it looks like when it comes right upon the people. So let's look at verse 4. It says this, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run. This is describing the locusts. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. In this immediate context of the Israelites, God is warning them of this physical destruction that's coming. They said they're going to appear, they're going to be so thick and powerful, they're going to appear like war horses coming toward you. They're going to be so loud that it's going to be like the rumbling of, of chariots and the crackling of fire coming toward you. They're going to be like an army devouring the crops in that an opposing army is set on complete and utter destruction. That is about what is going to happen in this text. And then in verse 6, in the next, or in two verses later, it says, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. I read this uh, a few times, several times this week, and it was actually really disturbing to me. And so I wanted to figure out, like, what exactly does this mean? So as I looked, uh, the scholars were agreeing that this is, they're describing the condition of where you have so much fear and terror that, that the blood actually runs out of your face and your, 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 your skin, your face turns pale because of anguish. Then it says in verse 9, They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. This all-encompassing onslaught is aimed right at them. It's a description of the, the awful future that is to come with the locusts, but also it is a, maybe in a bigger way, and in a more awful way, a description of the judgment that is to come on the future day of the Lord. Now, This warning of Joel to the people in Israel would have been a little bit shocking, right? This uses very descriptive and colorful language to try to warn them of how serious this was all going to be, even regarding the day of the Lord. And this would have jarred them, but there would have been something else that would have been really surprising to them, that really would have blindsided them as they read that. And is this, that that in their... uh, ancient Israel theology that they held, there was a common belief that, that the day of the Lord, and this is a, a, a misconception that they had in their belief system, there was a common belief that if they were associated with Israel, they were completely good on the day of the Lord. Like if they were of the right bloodline, if they were in Israel, that God would automatically save all of them. They were all going to be okay. They didn't have anything to worry about. Finally, God was going to come in on the day of the Lord, and he was going to save the day so everyone else would just be wiped out. They were finally going to get rid of their pesky enemies that were bothering them, that were attacking them, whatever. So everyone else done, us saved. That's what they thought. But what does the passage say? It says, you are in danger, Israel. Because the day of the Lord is coming for 
You, your nationality, your religious works, your association with with Israel is not going to save you because your heart has disobeyed. Nation of Israel, open up your eyes here. There's an open up your ears is maybe a better term because this tornado siren is going off for you guys. Israel, this trumpet blast is going off for you guys. This locust devastation that you're seeing right now, this is a warning of what's coming to you if you don't turn back to me. This is a little, um, a little bit like, imagine if Israel would have looked at the wanted poster uh, that the police would have posted of the day, and they're looking with curiosity to see who was the most wanted, and when they looked at the poster, they saw pictures of themselves with their own names on it. Didn't realize that they were guilty. And when speaking of the day of the Lord, unfortunately, this is uh, true of us as well. We are responsible for our own sins. We are pending under the judgment that this is talking about. And that judgment will be sadly as uh, bad, as horrific that it's, as it's described in this passage with anguish, with pale faces. This is not a joke. And for us in here, it makes us pause and do a little bit of a heart check. Because for all time, it wasn't just for Israel, but for all time, there have always uh, been people who have associated with God, who have gone through the motions, but yet they haven't given their heart to Him. Like the Israelites, many of us have assumed that, that if we go to church, we're good with God. Like the Israelites, many of us have assumed that, that if uh, we do more good deeds than bad deeds, then we're good with God. Or we've assumed that since we were born into a good, upstanding, moral, religious family, that we're good with God. God will save us. We'll go to heaven. Everything will be okay. There's also a few more subtle ways we can fall into this Israelite mindset. Some of us have assumed that since we're pretty well put together, we've put together this Christian resume that we put our hope in, as in we read our Bibles, we go to church, we volunteered at the church. Growing up, um, we may have memorized a couple Bible verses. You maybe went to Christian camp when you were in school growing up during the summer, and you even went on a couple mission trips to go help out some people in need, and maybe you listen to Christian music every once in a while, and you even wear, or maybe have worn a Christian t-shirt or two, and you even are able to impress some Christian people that are around you in church. And we assume because of that that we're good with God, but the question is, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you trusted in him? your answer to why are you a Christian is more about the good things that you've done and the bad things that you've uh, avoided doing, you may need to reconsider if you're more like these Israelites than you realize. This is the sounding alarm from God who's giving you this opportunity to go and check your heart right now. And the way to do that, the way to listen and respond this morning is to do a heart check and ask yourself, have I actually trusted in Jesus for salvation instead of my own works? And these next couple of verses are going to describe to us really how this works, how trusting in Jesus actually works. And we're going to look at the third section, which I'm calling God as our sacrifice. Now, before we read uh, the, the last couple of verses in this text, I have to be honest. As I've read through this passage this week, and as I've uh, read through 
just words like anguish and pale faces and the destruction and, and judgment. This has bothered me. Like, it, it doesn't sit well with me. And I, I, like, I don't like thinking about it. I don't really love talking about it. And I'm assuming for some of you who are sitting in the seats as you're thinking about this and an upcoming judgment day, it's just, it, it bothers you. You may have knots in your stomach as you're, like, listening to this and thinking about this. And, and even when I think about this, when I think about part of God's character being judge, I just, it naturally just question, like, does it have to be this way? Like, does God have to do it this way? Well, as I've thought about it this week, one of the things that God has brought to my mind um, is a perspective on God as judge. And I've really thought about it this way. <clears throat> Man, if we take a look around, and have you, have you looked around in in just our city recently, or around the world, have you realized the consistency of pain that exists in this world? Or maybe a better way to think of it is this. Have you really thought about the enormous gap, the chasm between a perfect world and between the world that we have right now? The world where all these horrific things are happening in Syria day after day. A world where there's, where there's civil war happening and where terrorism is tearing apart lives one by one. Where even on our own streets there's violence that's taking people out and killing them. Even within our own schools, in, in our own families, in our own neighborhoods, there's pain and, and abuse and neglect. And it's just ugly. Even you look inside your own hearts and you can see the ugliness of this. And the reality is, is God is not okay with this. He's not okay leaving the world like this. He desperately wants to get the world back to its original perfected state. And he will do what he has to to get it there. And God's mission in judging sin is so that he can wipe this stuff out and cleanse it so he can return it to its original state. And so God's judgment isn't because he's just an angry vindictive God, but it's rather because he's perfect and he desperately wants us to experience this perfect world with him. So if judgment is coming for all of us, and if the horrors of this passage are actually a real thing, then how in the world is there any good news out of this? How is there a thread of hope coming from this passage? Let's read the last two verses And we'll talk about this. In verse 10, it says, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This, these verses, they tell of the cosmic implications of this judgment. So in other words, it's not just coming for people, but all things will be affected. The earth, uh, the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars will be affected by this. And in case you're wondering, wait, is God really behind all this? Look no further than these verses right here in verse 11, when it very clearly says that God is the commander of the locust army, and he is the one who's executing judgment in this section. And if you're thinking, man, I wonder though, is it possible that my good works, what I've done, could actually be able to hold up to God's standard on this day? 
Look no further than the very end of verse 11. The last phrase in this passage is a rhetorical question that says, who can endure it? The colorful descriptive language in this passage, in this rhetorical question, lead us very clearly to this answer to this question, and that is, none of us. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Absolutely none of us. None of us are good enough. None of us can measure up. Not one. Not me. Not you. Not a celebrity pastor whose sermons you listen to. Not Gandhi. Not Mother Teresa. Not the Pope. Not anyone. Every one of us is guilty and has this destruction coming to us. However, there was one man who walked the earth who wasn't like the rest of us. There was one man who didn't fall to temptation. There was one man who wasn't disobedient to God. There was one man who wasn't unfaithful to his heavenly Father. There was one man who lived with his heart completely rendered to God without a trace of sin, and he lived in complete faithfulness every single step of every single day. And if there was one man who was undeserving of the punishment of God, it was Jesus. But yet, Jesus took it. He took the punishment for us. You see, the punishment of the day of the Lord came down from God the Father down to His Son, Jesus, on the one man who didn't deserve it. He stood there or hung there in our place on the cross. We hints of this in the passage, actually. In verse 10, the language tells us that the earth is quaking and that the sun and the moon and the stars were darkened. Well, think of the scene on Good Friday as Jesus hung on the cross. In Matthew 27, it describes it to us. Verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Then it states in verse 51, And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Who can endure the judgment of God? Jesus can. And Jesus did. He did it for us who could never endure it. The deserving punishment for our sins, if we are in Christ, has been placed on Jesus. And so as God the Father looked down on Jesus on the cross, he saw all of our sin. He saw my sin as his son hung there on the cross. And what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is it says, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is our substitute. So what does this actually mean for us? It means that when you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior, your sins are removed from you. There is no more condemnation or judgment coming toward you. He has taken your sins and he has taken and and removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. There is no more guilt or shame that you should feel for this. The judgment that was coming toward you is no longer coming toward you. 
The day of the Lord is no longer a day to be feared, but it is a day where we can be gracious to God. We can have gratitude because he has saved us from this, because what he has done, when horrific judgment should have been coming toward you, Jesus stepped in the way and he took it in your place. So how should we listen and respond to this? Well, if you're someone who's never placed your faith in Jesus, or you're someone who's maybe just been playing the game, you've been around, you've been associated with Christians and Jesus, but you've never really given your life to him, God is sounding this siren to you today, this warning call, and saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. This day is really coming, but I have taken that destruction from you. You can give your life to me and you can know that you don't have to face that one day. But instead you can have life with me. There's a call to Jesus this morning. Would you trust in him as your substitute? Would you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you trust that he is the only one that brings hope into this awful situation, knowing that when the day of the Lord comes, when judgment comes, when you place your faith in Jesus, when that day comes, Jesus will step in front of you and say, she's innocent because I paid the price for her. Or Jesus will step in front of you and say, he's innocent because I paid the price for him. That's what you can have as you lean into Jesus. If you trust in him today. And I would just challenge you, man, would you listen and respond? God may be trying to get your attention this morning to give your life to him. And if that's something that you're interested in doing, in a couple of minutes, Andrew and I will be standing at the back and we'd love to walk with you through that. We'd love to talk or answer any questions you'd have as you consider that. Would you listen and respond to him this morning if you've never trusted in him? Now, For the Christians in the room, can I give another way to respond? First of all, man, isn't it just a tremendous relief to know that the judgment from the day of the Lord is no longer coming toward us because of what Jesus has done? Isn't Jesus amazing? What a relief. So in light of that, in light of the hope that we've experienced, I want to call you to something a little bit different. I want to call us to a Joel-like role. Joel, in this passage, is living amongst his people, and he is risking his reputation and his life to be able to share this news from God because he believes it, he knows that it's true, he knows that judgment is coming, but he also knows that God is waiting with open arms for people to turn to him. So could we take a Joel-like role and tell people, The judgment is coming, but they can turn to the Lord. They can turn to Jesus. Providence, the reality is, although we really don't like to think about this, the day of the Lord is coming for our family, for some of our brothers and sisters, for some of our parents, roommates, friends, and family. And as we think about this, Could we allow this to move us to urgency, to actually share Jesus with people? Could we allow this fact, this somber fact, be the thing that would burst through our own sense of awkwardness and uncomfortableness to actually start talking about Jesus with the people around us that we love and that we care for? 
Could we allow this to drive us to our knees in prayer, to to cry out to God that he would save souls of the people around us so on that day they could be covered by Jesus as well? And could we share with people around us that that they've sinned and God judges, but, but Jesus offers real hope? Man, Providence, what could be a better use of our time What could be a better excuse to to get through our awkwardness? Like, like this is real. This is an opportunity that we have. And God is blowing this siren for us as well. Man, let's be bold in conversation that Jesus really brings hope. Let's be fervent in prayer and get on our knees and pray for the salvation of the people around us. And man, could we just share in love and deeds and action? Could we share the most loving and gracious act on the face of the earth that has ever happened, that happened by Jesus sacrificing and us being able to benefit from that? Could we be a people that tell the good news of Jesus to the people around us? This is a very real day, a somber subject, but because the news is so bad, the goodness of Jesus is so good. So could we be a people that tell the good news to the world around us? Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for uh, this message, this bleak message that um, causes us to not be able to turn to ourselves, but to be able to have to look outside of ourselves to look outside of ourselves uh, to something that's greater than us, something that could save us in our weakness. Jesus, I pray that, um, that we could turn to you, that we could listen and respond to what you're telling us to do. Jesus, this will inevitably be uh, uncomfortable at times, difficult at times, um, hard to handle at times, uh, But Jesus, you are walking with us. You are calling us toward you to follow you. So God, I pray that we would follow you obediently. God, I pray that that many people uh, here in our own neighborhood, in our own church, in our own city uh, would be giving their lives to you to experience what new life in you really looks like. And God, would you be so gracious to use our uh, small church plant to do that? Would you be so gracious to use our words and our actions to be able to help people see uh, the light and life of Jesus? And would they give their lives to you so they could experience true hope in you? Jesus, we love you. um, And we pray that you would lead and guide us and you would help us listen and respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.